The penal system now incarcerates about 2.2 million people, and if we add probation and parole populations to that, around 7 million Americans are now under some kind of correctional supervision. At what point are we no longer locking up the individual, but uh, locking up the group? Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes or elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. Today, we're joined by Harvard professor Bruce Western, director of the Malcolm Wiener Center for Social Policy and chair of the program in criminal justice here at the Kennedy School. Bruce, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot, Matt. So we're here to talk about mass incarceration. You're a sociologist by by training. Was there something that sparked your interest initially? Yeah, I mean, I, I started out really as a student of uh, pov- poverty and labor market inequality. And uh, my early work was on uh, labor unions and the effects of unions on uh, incomes and income inequality. And uh, uh, and most of that work was comparative, uh, looking at Western Europe and comparing the United States uh, to Europe. And, uh, and of course, uh, the labor movement uh, in the United States is not strong. Uh, and institutions uh, are involved in economic distribution differently uh, uh, in the United States. We don't have a large welfare state uh, as, uh, as we do in Europe. Uh, but uh, the criminal justice system has grown to be very large and has grown uh, to have a very intensive footprint uh, in our poorest communities. And so for me as a student of, uh, of poverty uh, and interested in the way institutions uh, influence economic distribution, uh, the criminal justice system in the United States became a very compelling topic. So that's how I, uh, that's how I began in this area. Can you explain the concept of mass incarceration? Yeah, yeah. So mass incarceration was a term uh, coined by David Garland, a sociologist and, and legal scholar. And, uh, and Garland said uh, mass incarceration really consists of two things. One, it's a, a level of incarceration that's historic, historically and comparatively unusually high. Uh, but, but secondly, he added that incarceration is so socially concentrated that we're no longer locking up individual offenders, but we're incarcerating whole groups within the community. And, uh, and for me as a sociologist, this was a really intriguing idea. At what point are we no longer locking up the individual, but uh, locking up the group? And uh, uh, a lot of my research, I think, has been involved with uh, trying to develop some empirical markers of this idea of the incarceration of the group rather than the individual. Now, this is a trend, really. It started back in the 70s, I think. Um, Can you explain what happened over the course of that time and how we got to where we are now? Yeah, yeah. And so for most of the 20th century, uh, we uh, incarcerated in the United States about 100 per 100,000 of the population. So on any given day, historically, 0.1 of 1% of the population uh, were behind bars. And in the early 1970s, uh, American prison and jail populations began to grow. And they grew every year continuously for about the next 35 years. Uh, and so by 2006, 2007, uh, the overall prison and jail incarceration rate was over 700 per 100,000. So uh, we're, we're now uh, 
more than five times uh, larger than our historic average. And if we look at Western Europe uh, today, uh, there where uh, we were historically about a hundred. Uh, 100 per 100,000. So this is a very historically unusual time where uh, the penal system uh, now incarcerates about 2.2 million people. And if we add probation and parole populations to that, around 7 million Americans are now under some kind of correctional supervision. It's very historically new. Uh, It's really only emerged in the last 10 years or so. Back in the 80s and early 90s, the United States at least had an incredible crime problem. It was a huge issue that has now receded. Now we're in a time period where we're seeing record lows in terms of crime. That seems like it could correlate with the fact that there are more people in prison. Is that accurate? Well, a a lot of people have uh, looked at this question. And if we take a longer historical view and go back to the 1960s. Uh, in the early 1960s, crime was uh, was relatively low, and crime rates began to increase in America through the 1960s and uh, the 1970s. And, and there was a very large increase in, in violent crime uh, through those two decades. Uh, incarceration rates began to grow uh, in the early 1970s and, and have basically grown uh, continuously over the subsequent uh, uh, four decades. Uh, but crime rates uh, haven't always tracked incarceration rates in a straightforward way. In the early decades, uh, uh, crime and incarceration uh, were increasing. Crime was fluctuating around a high level uh, through the uh, 1980s, but incarceration continued to increase. And then crime rates uh, began to fell and have fallen for two decades, as you suggested, uh, through the 90s and 2000s. But incarceration rates continued to increase. So there isn't really a stable relationship between crime and incarceration if we take a long historical view uh, over a period of, uh, of four or five decades. I think crime is important because it changed the policy context. And, uh, and crime became very salient as a social problem through the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, and that was the context in which uh, much, much harsher sentencing policy was introduced. And ultimately, it was policy change uh, that drove the, uh, drove the increase in crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot more to say, too, about the effects of uh, rising incarceration on uh, on rates of crime, uh, and it it appears uh, if we were to only look at the period from the 1990s that rising incarceration is associated with declining crime. But if we take this longer view, uh, we can see that uh, that's an unstable relationship, and the evidence for the crime-reducing effect uh, of incarceration uh, is highly uncertain. And m- most research uh, estimates the uh, effect of uh, incarceration on crime to be quite small. So what was this increase in incarceration a response to? Was it specific, uh, specifically crime rates, or was there, were there kind of bigger things involved? That, w- that was certainly a piece of it. Crime rates was certainly a piece of it, but there were at least two other things uh, going on. Uh, one was there was a, a, a real and quite profound change uh, in American politics and uh, I think tough on crime policy 
uh, can probably be traced uh, at least as far back uh, uh, to the early 1960s and uh, crime is beginning to rise in that period and crime has become salient, becoming salient uh, as a, a social problem. And so crime is uh, uh, rising to the top of the political agenda. The 60s, of course, at the same time, are uh, a politically turbulent decade. Uh, the civil rights movement uh, ushers in uh, passage of the Civil Rights Acts, and we, we see the promise of full African-American citizenship uh, for the first time. And there's a, a racially charged backlash uh, to that political uh, political development. And talk about crime in politics also becomes very racially charged. And uh, on the conservative side of politics, I think there's a, a very deliberate effort uh, to be tough on crime, partly to uh, capitalise on anxieties uh, uh, among white voters about this very uh, rapid change in American race relations, uh, but also partly uh, in response to uh, a real rise, uh, a real rise in uh, in crime, and so the tough on crime movement begins on the conservative side uh, of politics, and uh, uh, and then we get to see uh, a lot of sentencing reform. Uh, over the 80s and 90s that pushed sentences in a tougher direction. Now, at the same time this whole political story is happening, uh, there are some really deep changes in the social structure of American cities and uh, urban deindustrialization is creating really severe employment problems, uh, particularly among prime-age unskilled men, men without uh, any college education, uh, and historically, they had gotten manufacturing sector jobs, but those jobs were disappearing from American cities. And so low-skill men, and particularly low-skill men of colour, uh, began to face really severe uh, unemployment problems. And it was ultimately these men uh, that came to fill uh, the prisons and jails in subsequent decades. The NAACP had a statistic that of the 2.2 million uh, incarcerated right now that you mentioned, nearly a million of them are black men. That seems outrageous. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, there's an enormous racial uh, disparity uh, in incarceration. African Americans are about six or seven times more likely uh, to go to prison uh, than whites. Uh, uh, Latinos are about twice as likely to go to prison uh, than whites. And if we look at the bottom of the uh, education distribution, we see incredibly high rates of incarceration among African-American men with very low levels of schooling. So uh, we estimate that in recent birth cohorts for black men, if they dropped out of high school, the chances that they'll go to prison at some point in their lives uh, is now about two-thirds, and uh, which is kind of an extraordinary and uh, and tragic social fact, uh, uh, I think. And uh, and for me, this is where the uh, the problem of mass incarceration uh, gains its moral urgency. 
how do you reverse the effects of 30 years of increased prison populations? I mean, you mentioned 2.2 million incarcerated, but another, what is it, 5 million that are in the parole system? That's right, parole Um, and probation. How do you walk back these policies that I can only imagine have had a tremendous impact on the various communities that they've hit? Yeah, yeah. I think there there are two pieces to the answer to that question. And, uh, one is sentencing reform and the other is social policy reform. Uh, thinking about sentencing reform, uh, the system grew uh, because uh, people who were arrested uh, were much like, became much more likely to get felony charges and to go to prison. And once they got to prison, they began to serve uh, much longer sentences than they had in the past. So reversing prison populations will partly uh, involve developing alternatives to imprisonment as forms of sentencing. And I think the so much of this uh, happened in the uh, area of drug sentencing. And the war on drugs was a, a huge driver of uh, uh, both racial disparity and the increase in incarceration. And so winding back drug sentences, uh, uh, eliminating mandatory minimum drug sentences uh, will be uh, an important step. Uh, And uh, the other piece of it is uh, winding back very long sentences. We have unusually long sentences in the United States. Uh, Right now, there are about 50,000 people serving life without parole sentences. In Europe, the number of people serving life without parole is 12. Uh, It's a sentence that's just unknown uh, uh, in the other advanced countries. Uh, uh, And so, and and it's created a class of geriatric prisoners uh, uh, who pose no real risk to public safety. Um, And so uh, uh, the other piece of sentencing reform is winding back uh, those very long sentences. Um, But then... If we're in a world now with significantly reduced incarceration rates, we've got a lot more uh, prime age men, uh, many of whom are struggling with uh, real problems of untreated addiction, untreated mental illness, uh, uh, many of whom uh, have no serious record of employment. Somehow uh, we're going to have to find other ways uh, to manage uh, the problems of uh, uh, those uh, prime age men uh, who are overwhelmingly very poor in our poorest communities. And that's going to involve social policy reform. And the key measures there, I think, uh, are going to be substance abuse treatment, uh, housing uh, and employment. And uh, uh, I think uh, and all of this is a different way of thinking about policies for public safety. Uh, If we think that public safety is uh, having people and communities that have order and predictability in daily life, uh, do we want to enforce that order and predictability uh, through incarceration or do we want to uh, develop it uh, through uh, the pro-social functions of family, a steady job, stable housing? Uh, And I think that's what the policy alternative ultimately looks like.
as I understand it, if you were to take all of the nonviolent offenders, the people who are arrested for drugs, that kind of thing, out of the system, um, that would only create a small dent in the increase in incarceration over over these years. Um, what about that huge block of current prisoners who we call uh, uh, violent offenders? Um, what? How how do how does society deal with that group of people? Yeah, this is a a, a key question, uh, an important question, because there's been a lot of energy uh, for sentencing reform and criminal justice reform uh, over the last year or so, but so much of it has uh, has focused on uh, the so-called nonviolent uh, offenders and uh, uh, people. Uh, for the most part, who were convicted of drug crimes. and um, uh, But th- as you say, this will only uh, reduce uh, uh, prison populations by a small amount if we uh, are only confining the reform effort uh, to drugs. Uh, and so we have to, uh, we has, have to uh, grasp the policy challenge uh, of sentencing for violence and more generally... Uh, Violence is a social problem in uh, in poor communities. Uh, overwhelmingly, our response to the problem of violence right now is punitive, and uh, uh, we now send people away for very long sentences who are uh, who are convicted of violence. Uh, to meaningfully reduce uh, incarceration rates and the community level damage, the very high rates of incarceration. Uh, can cause, uh, we're going to have to uh, reduce sentences uh, for people convicted of violence. And I think, and, and, and that's a, a big challenge culturally, uh, politically. I think uh, we have a very retributive perspective on people who were convicted of violence. Uh, but as I look at people who are incarcerated for violence and the communities in which violence is a problem, uh, this retributive perspective, in my view, is hard to justify. Um, if we think about people coming out of prison, uh, we've been conducting interviews uh, over the last three or four years with a cohort of uh uh, Massachusetts state prisoners returning to Boston. And what's striking to me from our interviews is how people coming out of prison, uh, the degree to which people coming out of prison have been involved in violence in different ways over a lifetime. And uh, nearly all of the people uh, that we've been interviewing were exposed to really serious violence as children. Uh, as victims of violence, mostly family violence, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, witnesses uh, to violence, violence in their neighbourhoods and and violence in their homes. Uh, as they grew up, they got uh, more involved in fighting, uh, and then uh, I think of them more as participants rather than victims or offenders. They're, they're fighting with uh, other kids in uh, adolescence and uh, ultimately... Uh, they become more involved in uh, violent offending uh, that's recognised by uh, 
the criminal justice system. So people who are convicted of violence and people who are convicted of drug offences too uh, uh, commonly have long histories of violence that uh, often involve uh, uh, childhoods uh, filled with trauma uh, and victimisation themselves. And for me, this poses a really deep question of justice. Do we want to respond uh, to these biographies uh, with only a retributive uh, response? Is punishment the only response uh, to the problem of violence in, in this context? Uh, and so much of the violence that we see is, uh, is closely linked uh, to poverty, uh, growing up in very poor families, uh, in which uh, problems of addiction and mental illness, uh, chronic joblessness, uh, go largely uh, untreated, uh, uh, creates chaotic home environments, creates uh, disorderly neighbourhoods uh, in which children uh, become exposed to a lot of violence. I can't say with any confidence if, uh, if I was growing up in such a neighbourhood I would necessarily make uh, different choices uh, from the people that we're interviewing coming out of prison. And I think that's the public policy challenge. Can we think of other morally reasonable ways to respond to the problem of violence mm -hmm. in social contexts that are as harsh and as brutal as those? Are there social, pol or, uh, I guess, uh, programs that have been shown to work to actually try and combat that cycle of violence? Yeah, I, I, uh, there have been, and uh, and I think a, a lot of this work is preventive uh, rather than uh, restorative or remedial at, uh, at the back end. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, um, certainly there's uh, work being done uh, in policing uh, uh, that tries to uh, prevent violence uh, before it occurs or... Uh, heads it off before it uh, before it really uh, before it really flares. Uh, I think there are a lot of community-based strategies too uh, uh, that don't involve the criminal justice system at all, that are oriented towards providing this thick kind of public safety in which people have uh, order and predictability in daily life, and and that's produced through uh, the structure of things like. Uh, stable jobs, stable families, uh, uh, good schools, a rich organisational life in local communities and so mm -hmm. on. This seems to be a problem that is nationwide. Is it, is it something that has to be addressed uh, at the both, both the state level and the federal level? And are there, how, how is this actually getting attacked? Yeah, I mean, so much of criminal justice policy is organised at state and local levels. But mm -hmm. Uh, law enforcement, uh, local organisations by and large, and uh, uh, our prison systems are uh, state jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, and there's uh, 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 a lot of reform effort uh, going on uh, at both the uh, the state and local uh, the state and local levels. Uh, I think, and, and uh, on on the side of correctional policy and sentencing policy, a lot of this uh, is uh, happening with drug policy uh, and drug sentencing. I, I think we're still waiting for 
that brave governor uh, to take the lead on uh, sentencing for violence and, and really developing a comprehensive alternative approach uh, to problems of violence. Uh, I think there is also massive scope uh, for federal leadership uh, on the issue. We saw this in the 1990s when the system was moving in a punitive uh, direction. The 1994 crime bill uh, provided uh, enormous incentives uh, to states uh, for harsher punishment and uh, prison construction. Uh, I think we need a new crime bill uh, that capitalises uh, on the energy uh, that's developing uh, for reversing mass incarceration. Well, Bruce Western is Harvard professor and Malcolm Wiener Center for Social Policy director. He's also the chair of the program in criminal justice. Thanks so much for being on PolicyCast today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. HKS PolicyCast is produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Special thanks to those who help get us out there every week, including Catherine Serafin at Harvard, as well as Ellen Clegg and Lauren Colarusso at the Boston Globe. And to you for listening in. See you next week. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. You can subscribe to PolicyCast on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. And let us know what you think on Twitter 